0: Uh, Do you ever wonder whether God is really building his church? Uh, Do you ever look around you on a Sunday morning and notice the few dozen people sitting here and compare that to the hundreds of people that you saw as you drove here this morning? The people sitting in coffee shops or the cars in the Bunnings car park or those out exercising or those washing their cars? Do you ever feel how insignificant and powerless the church is compared to large companies or governments or media outlets or educational institutions? We seem so weak in terms of resources and influence and numbers. And yet looks can be deceiving. Things are not always what they seem. God is at work in ways that we can't see or explain. And there's growth that may may not look significant, but that is eternal and real. God is getting things done by his spirit, so we need to trust him and not try to build things on our own. Now that's the lesson for us from today's chapters of Zechariah. Looks can be deceiving... Things are not always what they seem. God is at work in ways that we can't see or explain so we need to trust him and not try to build things on our own. Remember the situation in Israel? They've been released from Babylon after 70 years. They've been allowed back by King Cyrus of Persia to rebuild the temple. But it's 20 years on and there's not much progress. Maybe the foundations have been laid but that's about it. The crops are failing. Persia's still in charge. Half the people haven't even bothered to leave Babylon and come back to Israel. Uh, Those that have have made a new life, but life is tough. And the people can't help thinking, is God at work or not? Uh, Chapter 3 last week was a vision about the religious leader, Joshua. Joshua. Uh, His grandfather was high priest when the temple was destroyed 70 years earlier. Uh, Chapter 3 was about how God would cleanse Joshua of sin and equip him for the job as high priest. This week, chapter 4, is about the political leader, Zerubbabel. Uh, He's a descendant of King David and his grandfather, Jehoiachin, was the last king of Israel when Jerusalem was destroyed. He wasn't even born in Israel. He was born in Babylon. and now he is the leader of the returning Jews. He's the governor appointed by Cyrus. Uh, so we're up to vision number five uh, and verse two zechariah sees a gold lampstand with seven lamps. Uh, it's like the menorah, uh, the big candlestick holder, the menorah that was made for the tabernacle in exodus chapter twenty five. Spoiler alert, just to help you, it represents the temple. Uh, but unlike that lamp in the tabernacle that had to be refilled regularly by the priest, uh, this lamp in this vision, it, it has an automatic feeder system, a hydroponic system, uh, so it doesn 't have to be refilled uh, it 's a bit like uh, it 's a bit like those automatic cat feeders, you know the ones the ones that do Sarah out of a job. Uh, So it doesn't have to be refilled. There's a bowl on the top. Uh, So this is a a good picture, the clearest picture I could find about the vision. Uh, There's a bowl on the top of the uh, the lampstand and there are seven channels from the bowl into each of the lamps. Uh, And verse 3, the bowl itself is filled by two olive trees. Uh, And so verse 4, Zechariah asks the obvious question, what are these, my Lord? The angel doesn't reply straight away, but does give the helpful introduction there in verse 6. Have a look at it. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but, uh, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, whatever it is that Zerubbabel has to do, he is not to ach- try to achieve it by his own strength or his planning or his intelligence or his resources. Instead, he is to trust God who will achieve it by His Spirit? Uh, and when God is on your side, and when God is working, then nothing can stand in your way. Look at verse seven. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before you, b- before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Uh, now, that could be a literal mountain. Uh, maybe it's the mound of rubble left behind when the temple was destroyed. Uh, or, or maybe it could represent opposition. Like Babylon, in fact, there's a a verse in Jeremiah 51 that that says Babylon is the destroying mountain that God is against, or or perhaps it's Persia or or, or the surrounding nations. Maybe it's a metaphorical mountain, and uh, it's saying that any major obstacle or opposition uh, is, is this mountain that Zerubbabel will be able to. Um, move aside but the point is you won't achieve it, you won't defeat it by your own might and power Uh, you'll only do it by God's spirit nothing can stand in your way if you do it by God's spirit now almost certainly Jesus is thinking of this uh, image in Matthew chapter 17 verse 20 Uh, his disciples have been unable to cast out a demon from a young boy who's suffering seizures Jesus rebukes the demon, he heals the boy, and when the disciples ask why they couldn't do it, Jesus says, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So so what's the task in this vision of Zechariah? What's the task, and what's it got to do with this vision of lampstands? Well, finally, chapter seven, verse uh, chapter verse seven b, we get some answers. Second half of verse seven. Then he, that is the rubber ball, will bring out the capstone to shouts of God, bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me: the hands of the rubber ball have laid the foundation of this temple; his hands will complete it. So this is all about building the temple, as we've seen in pretty much every chapter so far. Way back when they'd first arrived in Zerubbabel, they'd started the temple within a year. And Zerubbabel had been there, he had laid the first stone. But then the building work had stalled. Well, now Zechariah's got a prophecy that Zerubbabel will also be the one who will lay the capstone, the top stone, the final stone that locks everything in place. He began the job and he will see the job through to the end. Now that's actually the same message as the first part of the vision, the, the weird bit. Uh, the lampstand represents the temple, uh, the lampstand represents the temple, the two olive trees represent the the political leader, and Joshua the religious leader. Uh, We find that out down in verse 12. Uh, Zechariah asks again about the two olive branches. Uh, And verse 14, the angel replies, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, priests and kings were anointed with oil when they were commissioned, when they began their, their task. Anointing was a sign of God's spirit that would equip them for the job. Joshua the priest the rubble the king and the the dream is saying that these are the ones who will provide the fuel for the lampstand they will be the human agents who will make sure that the temple gets built. the second half of verse ten gives us another hint that unravels this meaning for us uh, second half of verse ten says these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth now takes a while to work out what the seven is, but if you go back up towards the top of the dream, the seven, I think, is referring to the seven lamps. Fire represents God. Fire on Mount Sinai, the pillar of fire that leads the people. And so seven represents a completeness in heaven. And so God's seven eyes are represented by the seven lamps. His seven eyes represents his thorough. Uh, rule over all the earth Uh, and the seven lamps are located in the lampstand in other words the temple Uh, you see Zerubbabel and Joshua they're not just building any old house they're building God's house a place for God to come and live they are building God's earthly throne room now remember they'd started the work but then things had stopped And it's been nearly 20 years. Verse 10 gives us a hint about one of the reasons the work may have stopped. Because they'd lost enthusiasm. Uh, Look at verse 10. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The day of small things... This is a nod back to the time when they'd first started to build the temple. Ezra chapter 3 describes what it was like when they started to build. Ezra 3 says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. The builders had sat down they'd had a look at their resources and they'd made plans based on their resources and then they'd marked out the footprint for the new building. But it was much smaller and less impressive than Solomon's temple had been. Solomon had all the resources of his kingdom. And before him, King David had actually been stockpiling supplies for years. Now that was Solomon's temple, but, but this temple it was built on charity. It came from the donations of the people. It, it came from some gifts from King Cyrus of Persia. And so for those who'd experienced Solomon's temple, this one just seemed so small. So insignificant. Now that sort of feeling is the way we sometimes feel, isn't it? About church, about the growth of the gospel, about the cause of Christianity in the world. But God's message is, who despises the day of small things? Looks can be deceiving. Things are not always what they seem. God's kingdom may not look impressive when we measure it the way the world measures things. It may not look like it's growing. In fact, kingdom growth might hardly look like growth at all. But God's spirit blows where he wills. God grows things according to his timeline, according to his plan. which means that we won't grow it by might or by power. We won't grow God's kingdom by trusting human giftedness or the world's techniques for growth or by trusting big budgets or flashy advertising programs or new buildings only by trusting God's spirit. God's kingdom will only grow by God's spirit. Who despises the day of small things? When we begin to look with the eyes of faith, we often see God's kingdom growing in small things. In a growing godliness from ordinary people in the face of temptation. Or a growing maturity in dealing with complex relationship difficulties or a growing contentment with work or marriage or physical limitations, or a growing dependence on prayer in the face of long-term disappointment, or a growing perseverance and joy in the face of chronic pain, or a growing courage to share an ordinary faith in the midst of strong opposition at work or in your family. Or maybe as a church, we see God's kingdom growing in small ways, in a growing unity and love for one another, despite different backgrounds and preferences, or a growing patience and generosity, a stronger desire to meet together, and a greater openness and commitment to one another when we do meet. Growing numbers of people who begin to learn about Jesus and then put their trust in him and grow in knowledge and maturity and commitment. Now, all of this growth is not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit. Now, if that is true, which it is, then it means the most important thing we can do to grow God's kingdom is to pray. Yes, we need to do lots of other things as well. We need to organise and prepare and preach and teach and love people and give. We need to do all of those things. After all, the temple didn't get built only by God's spirit, did it? It was people working hard in dependence on God who built the temple. We need to pray. Without God's spirit, all our work is worthless. All our work is hot air. All our work achieves nothing without God. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders... How does that verse finish? Labor in vain. And so that brings us to the end of Vision 5. Chapter 3 saw Joshua cleansed and equipped for his job. Chapter 4 sees Zerubbabel encouraged and strengthened to do his job. Uh, These are the two olive trees. And everything is is in place at a human level for the temple to be rebuilt, for God to come and dwell with his people in his temple. Now that brings us to chapters 5 and 6, which you'll be relieved to know I'm going to cover in much less detail than we did chapter 4. Uh, Chapters 5 and 6 describe what flows from chapter 4. Once God comes to dwell in his temple among his people, God gets to work. And look at what happens when God gets to work. So that brings us to vision number 6, the start of chapter 5. Verse 2, Zechariah sees a flying scroll. Uh, It's nine metres long and four and a half metres wide. Now, this is a paper scroll, not a cinnamon scroll. Okay, just... uh, This is a huge scroll. Verse 3, it's flying over the whole land. Now, that's not something you see every day, is it? Uh, Think about one of those big advertising banners that gets dragged behind a light aircraft. Uh, This scroll represents God's law that impacts the whole nation. On one side it says that all thieves will be banished. On the other side it says that all those who bear false witness will be banished. They're just two of the Ten Commandments, but they're representing the whole law. Now the point is that when the temple gets built, chapter 4, and God returns to his people, and the law becomes a priority again, then it is going to change society. Because God's word is the sword of his spirit. God's word is how God's spirit influences and guides and corrects and rebukes and shapes his people. Now that's what God's word should be doing in us as well. Uh, Being shaped by God's people, uh, sorry, being shaped by God's word, it's one of the five outcomes of our church. One of the five areas that we're aiming for, that we we want to grow people in, Uh, to be shaped by God's Word. How are you being shaped by God's Word? As you hear it preached each, each week, as you think about it together in your home group Bible studies, as you read God's Word on your own, are you being shaped by God's Word? If you're not, maybe it's because you're not asking yourself this question. How does God want me to change because of this section of the Bible? How does he want me to change? What sin is this passage correcting? What obedience is this passage encouraging in me? So that's vision six. God's word will transform his people. Uh, Vision 7, from verse 5, there's a basket containing a woman called Wickedness, verses 7 and 8. She represents the sin of all the people. Uh, That's verse 6. This woman in the basket is carried by two other women with wings to Babylon, where a house or a temple will be built for the basket. (laughs) It's weird, but it's basically describing the same process of vision 6. That sin will be removed from the land. But it makes more sense when we recognise that uh, this image is borrowing imagery from the prophet Ezekiel. uh, Ezekiel chapters 8 to 10, which is also uh, weird imagery. So Ezekiel chapter 8, it's a vision... Uh, describing the idolatry that happens in Solomon's temple. Now, this is actually before the temple's destroyed and in a way, it's part of the reason why the temple was destroyed. Uh, so in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8, we, um, Ezekiel sees that there's a foreign idol in the temple. But also the glory of God is there and that together they're in the temple. This is shocking. Chapter 9 describes God's punishment against all the people who are involved in that idolatry in the temple. Uh, and then in Ezekiel chapter 10, um, uh, it describes God's glory, his, his visible presence, uh, moving out of the temple. Uh, it moves from the ark to the door of the temple. Then, verse 18, it, it, it joins up with God's throne, which is waiting outside the temple. Uh, and in chapter 10, it describes the throne that's supported by four cherubim, which are awesome heavenly creatures with wings, and they've got wheels underneath them that move in any direction. Uh, so the image is God moves out of the temple and, and rests on this heavenly taxi that's, that's waiting for it, for, for God's glory outside the temple. Uh, it look, might look something like that. Uh, and then verse 19, it stops at the east gate of the temple. And then in chapter 11, uh, I think we've got the reference there, in, in chapter 11, th- this whole thing with God seated on his throne, it, it moves out of the city and leaves the temple and stops on the mountain to the east of Jerusalem. Now, this image is all about God's presence leaving the temple because of the sin that's, that's there. Leaving Israel. Now, does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar uh, as we read about Ezekiel's vision about the woman in chapter 5. It's actually the opposite of what's happening here in Zechariah chapter 5 because the exile's over. Uh, instead of God leaving the temple because of wickedness, it's actually wickedness that will leave. And wickedness will go to its temple in Babylon. And instead of heavenly cherubim who are, who are carrying God, it's, it's earthly women who are carrying wickedness. In other words, Zechariah's seventh vision: it's an anti-ark carried by anti-cherubim to an anti-temple in an anti-Jerusalem. The wickedness of the people is removed to Babylon. Now, this is where God will deal with the wickedness. Now, that's what's going on in vision number eight. Uh, vision number eight, verse one, we've got four war chariots, uh, chapter six of, uh, verse one of chapter six, four war chariots leave heaven. Uh, they represent, verse five, God's avenging angels that go throughout the earth and deliver justice. But we're only interested in one of those angels, verse 8. The the action zooms in on the chariot that's heading to the north, which is where Babylon is. Verse 8 we read, Then those going toward the north country... uh, Sorry, look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. Uh, Back in chapter 1, we'd met four horsemen, four scouts, who'd gone through the world and found that the world was at rest. Uh, The peace of an oppressing nation over uh, dominating the rest of the nations. But here we've got four chariots and the rest we read about is the rest of God's spirit. God's spirit has delivered justice. Uh, When we combine it with vision number seven, the picture is that God deals with sin the way a bomb disposal unit deals with a dangerous package. Uh, It's sealed in a container. And then it's carefully transported away and then detonated at a safe distance. Now these last three visions, 6, 7 and 8, describe what happens as a result of vision 5. God comes to dwell, he removes sin to Babylon and then he deals with it. His justice is delivered against sin. Well, so this uh, exhausting night of visions comes to an end uh, at chapter 6 verse 8 you might be feeling exhausted. Can you imagine how poor uh, Zechariah was feeling? Uh, But it's not the end of the prophecies. If you have a look at chapter 6, verse 9, there's a much more conventional formula that we read. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. We're on safer ground now. It'll be easy to understand, won't it? Well, this prophecy, I think, reveals for us how God brings those other visions to pass. How he will come and dwell. How he will remove sin. How he will destroy sin. So this is the the, the key that unlocks, that answers all the questions. The key that unlocks all uh, the other visions. So verse 12 of chapter 6, we read about someone called the branch. And he will be both priest and king. Verses 9 to 15, if you like, are a peak under the bonnet to see how God's justice and mercy will be effective. And so verse 10, Zechariah is told to collect silver and gold from some of the returned exiles. Uh, and verse 11, to make a crown or two crowns. Uh, translations differ. Uh, the, the Hebrew for crowns is plural, and, and that, that plural can, it, it, it can mean more than one, but it can also just mean impressive or ornate. So, I think it's two. I think it's two crowns. He's to put one crown on the head of Joshua the high priest, which is weird. And then verse 12, uh, Zerubbabel is to say to Joshua, Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. Now, we met the branch last week in chapter 3. It's a title uh, from Isaiah 4 and 11, and also Jeremiah, about God's promised Messiah. Probably the idea is a branch who comes from King David's family tree. Get it? A branch from the tree. Now, in some some senses, the branch is talking about Zerubbabel. He's the governor. He will work in harmony with Joshua to build the physical temple. Both of them will rule their respective areas, so so there'll be harmony between these two individuals. But the ultimate fulfilment of these verses is Jesus. Jesus who will wear the crown as both priest and king. Not just a partnership between two people, but both roles in one person. As a priest, he sacrifices himself to pay for sin, to destroy sin. As a priest, he represents men before God. But as king, he he rules over sin and death and judgment. As king, he is building the house where God dwells which is not a physical building, but it's his church where God dwells. You see, Ephesians 2 borrows the language of the temple to describe how God builds his church through his King Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 19, You are members of God's household Let's think about Zechariah as he comes to the end of these visions. The overwhelming feeling, I think, for Zechariah would have been joy and freedom and gratitude to God. God was coming. God was going to deal with sin. But also, I think, for Zechariah, there would be a real conviction and a challenge that there was work to do. Not just building the temple, but but work on on obedience. Uh, Look at how chapter 6 finishes uh, Zechariah's words to Joshua the priest. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me, Zechariah, to you, Joshua. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. God's overwhelming grace to us It's not an excuse to to sit back and do nothing. It's a call to godliness and purity and to building God's house. Grace should be the fuel in your tank that motivates you to build God's house. To work with God in dependence on his spirit. Now if that was true for Zechariah, it's doubly true for us, isn't it? That double word is true for us as well. Uh, Firstly, we have an even greater feeling of joy and freedom and gratitude because God has come and God has dealt with sin in his son Jesus, our priest and our king. And we should also have the feeling of, of an even greater conviction and challenge that there is work to do. There is work to do the work of your personal godliness, your obedience, but also work together of building his temple, this church. And remember how we do that work? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognise with deep gratitude and joy, the work you have done for us in Jesus, that you came to dwell, that you dealt with our sin, that you removed it from us, you defeated it, destroyed it, and gave us the task of obeying you and building your temple, the church. We need the help of your spirit, Lord, and so we pray that you would be at work among us, growing us, growing us in all those ways that we've thought about, obvious and not so obvious ways, for your glory. Amen.